once heard Tim Keller compare preaching to the task of Joshua and Caleb and the other spies in Numbers 13. Spies there, of course, were were, um, commissioned, sent by the Israelites to go into the promised land, to come back with a report and to bring back and share some of the fruit of the land. And uh, just so Keller said that preachers are, are tasked, sent by their congregations to go into the promised land of the scriptures, as it were, and to come back with good, good fruit to share. And uh, that's what I hope to do every Sunday, this morning not excluded. It's, of course, our seventh anniversary as a church, and typically we do a standalone sermon in commemoration of this day. We ordinarily speak Uh, a little more directly to matters concerning our vision, mission, values as a church, something along those lines. But this morning, um, our endeavor feels a little more personal to me. Uh, Since this past May and over the summer, uh, the the Lord has been teaching me and helping me and shaping me in a particular area of of doctrine and in the Christian life. And Um, Perhaps I should say that it's not so much that I've been learning new information, although I'm sure that's true in some regard, but rather I've been coming to experience the more and more of the sweetness of familiar doctrines in new and fresh ways. I've been growing in um, maybe what the Puritans would have called experimental or experiential knowledge. And what I've been growing and knowing and experiencing is simply the fact that um, I'm a beloved child of God. I've been growing in the comfort and delight and and felt knowledge of that reality, and it's, uh, to be frank, it's been rather wonderful, and and, uh, I've talked with a few of you about that, some, in the last month. uh, Last month, I was encouraged to find an opportunity to to preach on what the Lord has been teaching me, and this seemed like a good time to do it. And so our text is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, and this text, along with a few others, have been Um, An object of meditation for me over the last few months has been rolling around in my mind quite a bit. It's been a verse that's been shaping and forming and filling my prayers for myself and for my family and for you all. Because I so desperately want you as individuals in this congregation to know and experience the comfort and delight of this reality that you are beloved children of God yourselves. So I thought we might explore it this morning. I hope it encourages you as it has me the past few months. And we're going to start our reading now in Ephesians 4. We'll start in 4.17 in order to get kind of a, a running start into our verse and to read it in context. But we're going to give the bulk of our attention to Ephesians 5.1 this morning. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and rejoicing to the astonishingly wonderful words of our God and Father coming to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Starting in Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. 
assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would take the words of this text and and preach them into the hearts of your people in a way that I never could so that we might grow in the, the comfort and confidence of being beloved children, so that we might be transformed more and more into the image of our God and Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, if you have any familiarity with Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, you'll know that, um, well, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And it was written to a church in Ephesus that was preached into existence back in Acts 18 and 19. It was a church that the Apostle Paul himself had an extended stay with. He stayed with them quite a bit longer than than he normally did. He spent three years with this church, as we see in Acts 20. But now he's he's writing to them later when he's imprisoned in Rome. And I won't give a, a detailed outline of the book, but I will tell you that It seems that this book really has kind of two main parts to it. The first three chapters of the book speak mainly to matters of Christian doctrine. And then in verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul seems to pivot, and he starts talking mainly, um, not mainly about Christian doctrine anymore as much as Christian discipleship. The first three chapters focus mainly on gospel conviction, and the last three chapters focus mainly on forming gospel culture there in the church in Ephesus. The first Half of the book shows us something of the heavenly gospel of Jesus Christ and the eternal purpose of God's redemption, but the the latter half comes down to earth and to temporality to tell us how this eternal gospel ought to affect our life together as God's people in the here and now. And so with that, I I actually, I I believe Ephesians 5.1 in a way summarizes the whole of the book. It speaks to the glorious and heavenly doctrine of the first half of the book and It calls us to a life of gospel discipleship in light of it. It speaks to the gospel conviction we must have and the way that it creates then gospel culture among us. It summarizes the book as a whole. And to summarize our text this morning here, we might say that what we see here is that we're called to become like the God who calls you beloved. Become like the God who calls you 
beloved. And so I want to explore this main idea in two main moves. First, I want to tell you what you are called to become. And then second, I want to tell you that you are called beloved. First, look with me at what you're called to become. Ephesians 5, 1 begins, therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. And our text in the original begins with the, the word translated here in the ESV as be. Be imitators. And that's an appropriate translation. However, uh, because of our, our familiarity with the word be and the shortness of it, the brevity of it, it might seem so small and insignificant to us that we might just pass over it without a second thought. And yet this word translated here is, is it's a rich word. I don't want to pass over it this morning. It's a word that literally means to come to exist, to come into being, to become, to be made, to be born. It's a word from which we get the English word generate. It's a word bursting with life. It gives a picture of abundance and fruitfulness and multiplication and life. And that, of course, that makes sense in light of the overall context of this verse, right? In chapter 4, we just read, Paul has been exhorting the, the Ephesians to, to put off the old self with all of its depravity and disgrace and to instead, verse 24, chapter 4, to put on the new self created, made, generated after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. In other words, he's saying that believers have been given a new life and a new nature within, and so we're to live in accordance with who we now are in Christ. We're to become more and more of who we are now in Christ. And he goes on to describe what that looks like. He says we're to become imitators of God. In other words, we are to follow, to emulate, we are to mimic and mirror and be like God. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that's pretty astounding. That's an astounding thing to say. And perhaps we should just say, just to clarify, that there are some ways in which we cannot and will not ever be like God, right? Some theologians have often distinguished between God's communicable and his incommunicable attributes, right? God's God has incommunicable attributes in that they cannot be shared or replicated or communicated to us in any way. They, they are attributes that only belong and will ever only belong to God. He alone is transcendent. He alone is omniscient. He alone is omnipresent, omnipotent. He alone is immutable and infinite. He alone is self-existent and self-sufficient and sovereign. Those are not attributes that we are expected to ever have. And in fact, the reason humanity is in such a mess in the first place is because we've grasped after those kinds of attributes. However, there are also communicable attributes. God's goodness his justice, his truthfulness, his mercy, his wisdom, his love. But, and while we'll never be infinite in these kind of characteristics like God is, they are still characteristics that we are meant to reflect and embody as humanity. They are communicable in that God intends for us to share in these kinds of qualities. And indeed, this is part of what we were created for from the beginning. Right? In a few weeks, we're going to be exploring Genesis 1, 26 to 28. But suffice it to say now, we find there in the beginning that humanity was originally created in order to be the divine image on this earth, right? We've been created 
in the image and likeness of God. We have been created to be like little mirrors that reflect God's goodness and love and mercy and truth. We've been created so that, in other words, we would imitate God. But what's more is that this is part of what we've been redeemed for as well. While God originally created us in his image and likeness, we we now know ourselves to be fallen and flawed. Of course, even even in our fallenness, we continue to bear the image of God in some respect by, by God's common grace. Even in humanity's fallenness, we retain something of the divine image, but it is a marred and mutilated image. Like a broken and shattered mirror fails to clearly reflect the image of a person staring in it, we fail to image God as we ought in our sin. And yet, God, in, in, the, in the lavish riches of his grace, he saw fit to redeem us and give us a new nature in Christ so that we might begin to be put back together again, so that we might be redeemed and restored image bearers as God's own beloved children. He has created us and redeemed us so that we might be like him. Perhaps it will seem impertinent to some, but this is how I sometimes like to put it. My family... We come to Dayton from rural Appalachia, and that still sometimes affects some of our our family culture. And so whenever my relatives see one one of my children, uh, and my older relatives, whenever they see one of my children, they recall what I looked like when I was nine or seven or five or three years old. They often say something like, well, ain't he a spitting image of you? Or "She's, she's just a spitting image of her papa. And what do they mean? They, they mean that my children bear the image and likeness of their father. They bear the family resemblance. And just so as Christians, we are to live as the image and likeness of our father. We are to bear the family resemblance. It is the purpose for which we have been created. It is the purpose for which we have re- been redeemed. We are to be the spitting image of our God. Then let's give some content to that. How, how, do we, how do we apply that? How, do we, how ought we imitate God more specifically? Well, the, the word therefore in our verse helps us here to see something of what Paul has in mind. Uh, as we sometimes say around here, when you see the word therefore, when you're reading the Bible, you need to find out what it's there for, right? Because whenever you see the word therefore, it's there in order to connect what's being said in the present verse to what's being said in the former verses. And so, Obviously, we need to look at what's being said in the former verses. Particularly, if we look at chapter 4, verse 24 and on, we see that you know, we're being called to, to put off the old sinful nature, to put on the new nature that we've been granted in Christ. And there are certain ways of living and speaking and acting here that describe what Paul has in mind. Verse 25 of chapter 4, don't lie to one another. Instead, speak the truth. God, your creator and redeemer and father, whom you are to imitate, he is a God of truth. He's he's a God of truth, not of lies. So imitate him by being truthful with one another. Verses 26 and 27, be angry, but don't sin in your anger, right? There are things in life that will make you angry and that you will actually be right to be angry about. Right? There are many terrible injustices in this world that are worthy of righteous indignation. And in fact, there are many terrible injustices in this world about which God is very angry. Sometimes anger is entirely appropriate. However, be careful. Because while God's anger 
is always right and just and proportionate and appropriate. Our anger is not because we are fallen. Our anger is often misdirected and disproportionate and extreme and sinfully expressed. And so be angry like God, but don't sin in your anger. Verse 28, don't steal. Put off thievery. Instead, be like God, the God who is generous. He is generous. He provides all things richly for us to enjoy. He opens his hand, the psalmist says, and satisfies the desire of every living thing. He's generous. But don't be greedy. Don't be stingy and selfish. Be generous like your God is generous. Verse 29, don't harm others with your words. Instead, speak what is appropriate and what builds up and encourages others. When God speaks, his word is life-giving and edifying and encouraging and soul-uplifting. Don't use your words to tear others down. Speak like your God speaks. Verse 31 and 32, don't be a people marked by anger and bitterness and quarreling. Instead, be a people marked by kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness because your kind and tenderhearted God has so forgiven you in Christ. So to sum it all up, imitate your truth-speaking, righteously angry, generous, encouraging, forgiving God. And perhaps we should just take this as an opportunity to speak to a matter concerning our vision, mission, values. One of our values as a church is to be a countercultural community, to be a people who embody a very different kind of culture than the culture of this world and of our day and of our nation. To be a people who embody the culture of God's kingdom, God's family, God's household. And I, I don't know about you, but, but it's, it's hard not to notice how angry, how bitter, how clamorous, how divided and derisive our culture is continually becoming. Some, some recent research has come out this past month or two claiming that political division is the worst it's ever been in the U.S. and that political violence is the worst it's been since the 1970s. And there are some things that make me question whether or not that's entirely true. However, it, it is evident nonetheless that the people of our nation are becoming increasingly bitter and angry and derisive toward one another. It seems like every day there's something else to be angry about, something else to quarrel with other people about and to clamor on about, about some issue or another. And friends, we should expect that, right? When the people of this world act like that, they are acting according to their nature. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do the Gentiles walk? In the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. In other, in other words, when those who are far from God act like that, they are living according to their nature. But Ephesians 4, 20 that is not the way you learned Christ. What you've been taught, Ephesians 4.22, is to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Don't mimic this world and their bitterness and their clamor and their division and their corrupt talk. 2024 election is coming up, right? I know this will be tempting. I know your neighbors and coworkers and social media acquaintances, you're going to see a lot of this. 
And you might be tempted to get drawn into some nonsensical quarreling and clamor, but that's not our culture as God's people. That's not who we are in Christ. That's darkness and futility and ignorance. And the light of our kingdom culture ought to shine all the more as that kind of darkness around us grows. Don't imitate this world. Imitate your God in his kindness, in his tenderheartedness, in his patience, in his forgiveness, in his life-giving, encouraging speech, in his generosity, in his truthfulness. Imitate your God. This is what we're to become. We're to become like the God who calls us beloved. But then moving on, this call would be crushing, wouldn't it? If, if that were just the completion of the sentence. But it's not. As Paul is often apt to do, he offers a word of comfort along with his word of conviction. He, he puts wind in our sails by giving an assuring word as we aspire to live to this high call. He gives a, a challenging imperative, but he offers with it a life-giving indicative because, listen, here's one of the secrets of the Christian life that Paul so often displays for us. We are loved into change, not merely commanded to, into it. We are loved into change, not merely commanded into it. The measure in which we become who we ought to be in Christ is first dependent on the measure in which we understand that we're beloved. And so if we have any hope of imitating God and lasting in this high call, you must first receive and rest in this reality. You are called beloved. You are called beloved. And this is what Paul says here. We are to imitate God. That's the imperative. That's the command. But we're to do it in light of this indicative, in light of this promise that we are beloved children. Of course, if you read the the whole of Ephesians, you'll see something of the fuller picture here. You'll see that we are not naturally children of God, not in the sense that Paul is talking about here. We are not children of God by birth, but by rebirth. This very reality is described in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where the apostle will tell us that by nature, we are all children of wrath, he says. By nature, we are rebels opposed to God. We have set ourselves against him as his enemies. We are at war with him if left in our natural state and therefore rightly under his wrath. And yet this is not where God has left us. Ephesians 2, 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy, listen, because of the great love with which he loved us, because he has redeemed us, he has rescued us, he has made us alive in Christ. Our position has changed. Our identity has changed. Our nature has changed. Everything about us has changed. We've gone from being children of wrath to now being children of God. We've gone from living under God's damnation to living in his delight. We've gone from living under his punishment to his pleasure, from his anger to his adoration. We've gone from being children of wrath to being children of of God. And this is truly, this is the big deal about being a Christian. This is 
This is the most significant thing about being a Christian. This is the highest privilege, the greatest joy. It's what all other aspects of our salvation lead to, and it's one aspect of our salvation that will last forever and ever and never change, that we'll always enjoy. If I could say it this way, I'd say it is the telos, the end, the ultimate aim of our salvation that we would live in covenant with God and enjoy him and being his beloved children. J.I. Packer in his wonderful book, Knowing God, and he's, he's got a chapter on adoption that's worth the weight of the book in gold. And really, in it, he, he compares the privilege of adoption to the, the very wonderful privilege of justification in the Christian life. Listen to what he says about it. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. That justification being declared righteous, that justification is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker So we need justification more than we need anything else in the world. But this the gospel offers us. And this the gospel offers us before it offers anything else. But that is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a legal idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness and affection and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater You see, being a child of God, being adopted of God, being given the position of being sons and daughters before him, that is the highest privilege in the gospel, which is to say, that is the highest privilege a human being could ever be granted in life and in eternity, and it's been given to us in Christ. And yet even more, Paul doesn't just call us children as if that weren't enough. Listen, he calls us beloved children. That is to say, he, he says we are children, and particularly that we are dearly loved children. We are loved children of God. And of course, the love of God toward us is a major theme in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. We see that in love, God predestined us for adoption. In love, he he chose us to be his very own children. Christian, God loved you from eternity past. It's it's a love fixed in his nature so that, listen, there's, there's nothing you could ever do to make him love you anymore. There's nothing bad you could do to make him ever love you any less. He loves you. And he'll never stop loving you because he never started loving you. He just always has and always will. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. 
Ephesians 2, 4. See that in time in history, God made us alive and saved us. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. That's why God has made us alive together with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places. In other words, he's given us the same position of Christ before himself. Why? Because of the great love with which he has loved us. Prayed this earlier. Pastor Brian led us. Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. Paul prays for the Ephesians to grow in spiritual strength. Why? Why ought the Ephesians grow in spiritual strength? The reason Paul prays for the strength of the Ephesians is so that they could grow in more deeply grasping and understanding and experiencing God's great love for them. You ever pray like that? God, give me strength. Increase my strength so that I might better understand and experience your love for me. You see, God, God wants his love for us to, to be so deeply impressed upon our hearts that we would be filled with life and vigor and confidence and peace. And then Ephesians 5.1 also said it would change our very character and way of life. He wants the fact that we are beloved children to put wind into our sails as we seek to imitate him. You see how this, this theme, this thread of God's love for us is woven throughout Ephesians here. So do you see that, that Paul is now showing that the fact that we're beloved children is why we ought to be imitators of God. The love of God is to so fill our vision that it's, it changes who we're becoming. But then what's more is that this phrase translated as beloved children here, this is, this is particularly astonishing. I, I didn't know this until this past week, but this phrase translated as beloved children here carried with it a certain kind of meaning in Paul's day. According to esteemed New Testament scholar Harold Honer, apparently the adjective translated as beloved here in classical times with reference to children meant beloved or contented, but particularly referred to an only child to whom the parents had devoted all their love. He says, in other words, because the child has received so much love, the child had the security of being loved and was thus contented. You see what he's saying? He's saying that what Paul means to say is that each Christian is the object of God's affection as if they were his only child. Similar to, to an only child whose parents have stored up all their affection giving them all their attention and care, and thus lives with the security of being dearly loved by his parents. God loves his own. God loves you like that. And you might think, well, that, that just seems ridiculous. It might seem appropriate. It might be appropriate to talk about Jesus in this way, but me? Jesus is God's only son. He's the apple of the Father's eye. We know that. But you might well be thinking, but me, how could I believe that? You might have the, the prodigal son kind of mindset. I might be considered as a hired servant after all I've done, but I would never presume to be called a beloved child like this. As we know, Jesus is the beloved son. We know this because... God the Father has told us. You might think of some time ago we were in Mark's gospel. We saw Jesus' baptism, Mark 1, 11. 
What did God the Father say over Jesus then? He said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. We see that again at the Mount of Transfiguration, Mark 9, 7. God the Father tells Peter and James and John, this is my beloved son. Apparently, the Apostle Paul learned from these events and what God had said in them, and so he himself had begun to refer to Jesus as the Beloved. Ephesians 1.6. The Apostle simply calls Jesus the Beloved. Truly, Jesus is the Beloved Son of God. But friends, listen. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul tells us that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. One of those blessings mentioned in Ephesians 1.5 is being adopted children of God. Here's what that means. Christ, the Son of the living God, shares His sonship with us in the gospel. Right? Christ, the Son of God, He went to the cross and he went there so that he would be treated there as a child of wrath. So that we who are children of wrath might instead become children of God. He took the wrath we deserve so that we might get relationship with God as sons and daughters. Which means that now, in the beloved, we are beloved. In the Son, we are sons and daughters. We are beloved children, and our Father, in the infinitude and transcendence and perfection of His love, is able to love each of us as if we were the only. In Christ, Christian, listen, individually, personally, you are a wonderfully loved child of God. You are precious to Him. He treasures you. He delights in you. He takes pleasure in you. Zephaniah 3.17, he rejoices over you with loud singing. He rejoices over you, much like an earthly father might rejoice over his own children. Maybe we should even say that the joy of an earthly father over his children would actually be anemic by comparison. Earthly fathers, Jesus says in Matthew 7.11, even though they're evil, well, they ordinarily delight to care well for their children, but then he says, how much more? How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, good give, give good things to those who ask Him? And just so, if earthly fathers who are evil delight in and love and so care for their children, how much more? Well, our omnipotent Father, the one whose love is infinite, the one whose love knows no limits, how much more will he himself, himself not being fallen, not being stained or plagued by sin, loving with such infinite power, loving with such purity and perfection, how much more will he love you as his own? God loves you. And he wants you to know that he loves you. He wants you to be assured that he loves you. He's made it abundantly clear to us in his word. Not just here in Ephesians, but in the whole of the Bible. Right? John 3, 16, for God so loved. Galatians 2, 20, Paul says, the son of God loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. 
Friends, we could go on and, and name many, many more such texts. These kind of passages once gave John Owen, the, the, the prince of the Puritans, reason to write that the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. That's the greatest unkindness, he says. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father is not believe that he loves you. And if that's true, then it must also be true that one of the greatest acts of honor and worship and kindness we can do toward our Heavenly Father is to believe indeed that he loves us and to receive and delight in his affection toward us. Amy and I, we, we love a show called Downton Abbey. We like it a lot. You can make fun of me if you want. It's one of our favorites. It's, of course, about the Earl of Grantham and his family and their grand house and about the lives of them and their servants, the butler, the cook, the maids, the footmen, and all the rest of it. Well, at one point in the series, there's a, a footman named William who begins to fancy one of, the, one of the maids, Daisy. And he chases her and she puts him off and he chases her and she puts him off and it goes on for a long time. But eventually William gets injured while fighting in World War I. And he comes home and becomes apparent that he's dying. And so he asks Daisy to marry him before he dies. And it takes some convincing, but eventually she agrees and William dies just shortly later. Well, after William's death, his father, Mr. Mason, begins to reach out to Daisy. He asks her to come and visit him at his farm and to, to eat lunch with him. And eventually, she makes it out to see him, but she's uncomfortable with the whole thing. She's got a quid pro quo of idea of what love and affection and family might look like, and she just doesn't know that she really deserves this. So she's, she's trepidatious to accept it. She was only married to William for a couple of hours. She doesn't know Mr. Mason that well. She's not sure why he's so eager to spend time with her and all that. And so while she's visiting, she says to Mr. Mason, she says, you shouldn't have gone through all this trouble. Not for me. I don't deserve it. Not when I was only married to William for a few hours. She's got this nasty idea that kindness needs to be earned. Mr. Mason says to her, you may not know this, Daisy. But William had three brothers and a sister, all dead at birth or not long after. He says, I think this is one reason why William married you, so that I wouldn't be alone without you, and I'd, I'd have no one to pray for. I think William knew that. And so he asked, will you be my daughter? Will you let me take you into my heart, make you special? You'll have parents of your own, of course. And at this point, Daisy interrupts him. She says, I haven't got any parents. Not like that. I've never been special to anyone. Mr. Mason says, except William. That's right, Daisy says. I was only ever special to William. I never thought of it like that before. Mr. Mason said, well, now you're special to me. God doesn't need us. He's not lonely without us, like Mr. Mason might have been. But indeed, because of what his son has done, we are now special to him. We are dearly 
loved children of God because of what Christ has done. He's taken us into his heart. And I know that's not an easy truth for some of us to accept or believe. Some of us might find texts like this and sermons like this for one reason or another hard to believe. It might be that some of you have you've suffered much in life. And if we're honest, we're, we're tempted to let our circumstances, the painful providences we've experienced, the sufferings and hardships we've endured, we might base our understanding of God's love toward us on realities such as those. But listen, when we do that, we forget that, that as Christians, we walk by faith, not by sight. That the basis, the foundation, the final authority for what we believe as Christians is not our circumstances. It's not our experiences. It's not our feelings. Our only final authority for what we believe is the Bible. And therefore, we ought to let the Bible tell us who God is, not our circumstances. We ought to let the Bible tell us about God's love for us as his children, not our circumstances. We ought to let the Christ and his work revealed in the word of God tell us about God and his relationship to us, not our circumstances. We ought to place our faith and trust in God and what he has said, and we thereby ought to believe that he loves us and delights in us and takes pleasure in us as his children. And when we do, we give God the greatest joy and do him the greatest kindness, as Owen would tell us. Some of us might be tempted to base what we believe about God's love for us on our own, our own worthiness, our own ability to, to measure up, our own obedience. We might reason that, well, I'm not actually all that lovable. I'm far more broken than I want to be. I'm impatient, I'm prideful, I'm selfish, and on and on and on we could go. Not all that lovable. And so what should make me think that God, the infinite good and just and perfect God of the whole universe, why should I ever think, what gives me the right to think that God loves me as his very own beloved child? And that's an easy one to answer. The answer is Christ. Christ gives you the right. Right? John 1.12 says that Christ gave us the right to become children of God. He gives you the right, children, to truly believe and delight and have confidence in the reality that God truly loves you as his very own child. It's not arrogant presumption to rest in and enjoy the fact that God loves you. It is your birthright as a Christian. It's what God wants for you. It's part of what Christ died to give you. And if God has paid such a high cost to give you that right, ought you to receive it and enjoy it and rest in it as he intends? If you do, you will indeed find this truth to increasingly add life and joy and strength needed to live as he has called you. You will see his love affecting you in your life and character and speech. You will find yourself more and more imitating him as his beloved children. And we will thereby grow collectively as a church who lives counterculturally to this broken world 
And we will more faithfully represent our God and Father as his very own spitten image. And it will be good. And so for this reason, let's pray together. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God and thereby imitate him and walk in his ways as beloved children. Through Christ, the beloved Savior, we ask and pray. Amen.